What many people don't understand though, is that entrepreneurs are not just in it for the profit. I think entrepreneurs are really like an artist with something inside that they have to express. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, venture capitalist David Blumberg. David Blumberg is bright, personable, successful, and undefinable. The longtime tech investor who founded and still runs Blumberg Capital is constantly at the cusp of innovation, especially when it comes to innovation in the U.S. and Israel. David is also known for the various parts of his vibrant persona. He's a polyglot intellectual with degrees from Harvard and Stanford and was one of the first openly gay heads of a venture capital firm. And what I learned from our conversation is that, for David, innovation and social progress can come from unexpected places. We began by talking about David's childhood. He grew up in Fresno, California, in a middle-class American Jewish household that was not that interested in the Jewish side. But David, well... I was a weird kid who needed more intellectual stimulation than was available at my local schools. And so I looked for it and couldn't find it until somebody brought me to a youth group meeting. And at the youth group meeting, I was really struck by this depth of richness in the Jewish tradition, the heritage of intellectual ferment, of studying, of questioning, of debate and rituals that were shared. And we didn't celebrate many of those in my family. They weren't anti-religious. They just were that sort of third, fourth generation in America that didn't know much. And so we didn't do much. So being an obstreperous, opinionated kid, I insisted that we celebrate Hanukkah. My sisters were horrified because we had to take the Christmas tree out, and oh, they were so upset. <laughs> But I said, "Hey, it goes for eight days." And wanted to go to Sunday school. That was odd, too. Most kids hated Sunday school. I liked it. Uh, question: When was the first time that you visited Israel? It was right after high school. I went on a two-month trip to Israel. One month was touring around the country, and then a month working on a kibbutz. It was a dramatic turning point in my life. And it was then that I realized that Judaism is much more than just a religion. It's a whole civilization with its own music and dance and cuisine and history and philosophy. And that was in the late 70s. And Israel, if you, you might not have even been born then, but <laughs> Israel was, was a was. different place. It was much less developed. Pretty third, second world style. And it's partly because of the economic policy that Israel had at that time, which was import substitution, high tariffs, a lot of large local monopolies, very few competitive imports. The change that I've seen over the last 30, 40 years is just amazing. Really, Phoenix out of the ashes. And I think what I would put myself today as an Israeli Jew living in America. I mean, I'm an American, huh. but I love the way Israelis celebrate the holidays. It's informal, it's not too dogmatic, it's loose, but it works and it fills the social fabric with a kind of a glue. Okay, so after this trip, you went to college and you studied at Harvard. What did you end up studying? I studied international relations and economics in the government department at Harvard, and <clears throat> I did my thesis on African-Israeli relations between 1973 and 81, and that was also a turning point in my life. Powerful, and it informs me to this day, frankly. The 73 war, the Yom Kippur War, was a breaking point for diplomatic relations between Israel and about 30-plus African countries, because the Arabs basically threatened the African countries, if you don't cut off ties with Israel, the UN, and so on, we're going to start 
stop lending you money, giving you foreign aid, and so on. So most of them did what they had to do. But what was shocking was even though the trade relations were broken off, trade volume expanded 800% in those eight years. Investment value went up billions of dollars. More volume of pilgrims, both Muslim and Christian. Military cooperation continued and so on and so forth. But it was fascinating for me to do this thesis. I was able to talk to business people, political people. I went to the UN and interviewed a lot of the foreign diplomats, foreign correspondents. I talked to spies. And it was fascinating to hear what was really driving this odd anomaly. What was explained to me is that people act based on their needs, personal interests, business interests, national interests, and deeply held religious or human values. So religious people didn't drop their Christian desire to go visit Bethlehem and Jerusalem because diplomatic ties were broken. Business people tried to change the names, but still do the business. Military needs were considered national security. So when I went to the UN, I would call these African embassies and say to them, I was doing a thesis on Middle East trade with Africa, which was true. And they would have no objections and they would see me. I would hold these statistics in my hand. I would say, well, okay, $350 million trade between Kenya and Saudi Arabia. Can you comment? And they would say, yes, it's mostly oil, da, da, da. And then I would say, then what about this with Oman, this with Egypt? And then I'd say, and this is with Israel. And he said, oh, no, we have no trade with Israel. I said, well, that's interesting because the World Trade Organization says that you have not only $300 million in trade, but it was up 50% from last year. And I said, sir, this is all off the record. Then they would often say, well, off the record. <laughs> and the best one was that somebody who said to me, David, what we do at the UN and what we say at the UN is one thing. What we actually do is entirely another. When I was in high school going into college, I thought, oh, government solves all the big problems. And when I had this thesis and other experiences working in Washington, I realized that often it's other things. It's business interests, personal interests, religious ties, cultural ties, military needs that really drive these relationships. So it led me to not go to law school and work in foreign diplomacy, which is what I thought I would do. Did you think about becoming an investor or also business person, entrepreneur? Where was your mind at that time? I had a pioneer ethos somehow genetically dipped into my veins. I don't know where that comes from, but I've always liked the idea of building and creating an adventure. The credit goes to an organization called Harvard Student Agencies. I was employed first as an assistant manager, and then I, the next year, created my own agency called Harvard Distribution Services. And I found the pleasure of serving clients. They have a problem. I'd find the people to help solve it, in this case, distributing flyers or being a courier or whatever they needed. Um, we were being paid for it. I was a middle-class kid, so I needed the money. Helping other students get jobs when they needed money, too, was also felt great. And then we would hire more people and we would get new clients and build. And if we screwed up, they would explain what we did wrong and we would try to improve it next time. And there was this constant dynamism of delivering value. I thought, I think I want to work in the private sector. So I said, I need to be in a more productive area than agriculture because that's old Israel. I want to be in the future of Israel in the U.S. And that was tech. And then I thought to myself, "Uh uh-oh, damn it. I went to Harvard. I should have gone to MIT. So now how do I get to tech from Harvard government and economics grad? And I thought, well, Wall Street or consulting. The problem was most of the large organizations like the Morgan Stanleys, they said, we hire 50 people a year and there'll be a bond deal one time and a cotton offering. And I said, well, I really only want to work on tech. And so I didn't accept those jobs. And instead I took a job with a place that was maybe less prestigious. It was in Baltimore, a place called T. Rowe Price. But it was a great decision because T. Rowe Price said to me, we're only hiring one person. It's you. The only thing you do is work with a technology team. I said, awesome. And you're going to pay me to do that. That's great. T. Rowe at the time did not invest in any Israeli companies because they looked at Israel as a small, socialist, dangerous, far away country without much tradition of high tech. And they were right. 
But I said, there are some successes coming up. They're already discounted versus a Silicon Valley company. So I was able to break the boycott, so to speak. There was no official boycott. Please, people at T. Ropeyes, don't be upset. You started Blumberg Capital in the 90s, but only in 2001, I think, you raised your first venture fund. I'm a very slow learner. I worked as a consultant. I had family offices and a Japanese trading company, and I was looking for deals for them. But really, the goal was a fund. And ultimately, I was able to figure that out. Lightning strikes a few times in your life, and this was one of them. I went to a conference, and I remember it was in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was describing one company. We had just helped raise money or something. And one young man came up to me afterwards and said, Mr. Blumberg, I'm working for a large European family office. I think they might want to talk to you more about this company and potentially working with you on investing in the future. And I said, great. So he called me the next week and he said, do you happen to be planning to come to London anytime soon? And I said, well, I'm actually speaking at another conference in London. He said, hold on one moment. And he comes back. Oh, Mr. Blumberg, I'm terribly sorry, but Lord Rothschild will not be able to attend your speech on Thursday because it'll be at his home in Corfu. But if you'd be so kind and stay the weekend, he'd like to invite you to the estate in Ellsbury. And I thought hard. I said, ah, Rothschild, estate, why would I want to do that? Yes, I'll be there. <laughs> so, so Lord Rothschild, Jacob Rothschild, Jan Hanadiv, the hand of the impresario who did so much for the establishment of the state of Israel, his family, they were our first investor. He's a friend to this day. I was able to go to his estate a couple summers ago and tell him that we were sending him a very large check. I told him about our efforts in Israel and how we're really helping the country establish itself. And he was thrilled. So obviously a lot of your passion helping build the country and Zionism, but is your motivation coming more from economic value? Are you mixing the economic development and of course financial motivation uh, and helping Israel? How does that come to play when you think about a deal? Motivation and passion are useful, sometimes crucial in getting you off your duff and trying to something new. So my passion for Israel was very important, but as an investor, as really any kind of professional, you have to exercise professional standards. So I always say, don't be a Zionist of the heart. Use your critical faculties. Be skeptical, just as skeptical or even more so than you would have a deal down the street. Why? Because in your home country, you know the customs, you know the laws, you understand psychology. And when you're in another country, whether it's Israel or France or Mexico, there are different customs, different mores, different laws, different ways of doing business and different cultural norms of what is acceptable in terms of stretching the truth, bending the rules, et cetera, et cetera. And I say to people, don't check your brain at the customs counter when you cross into Israel. Bring your skepticism. Be just as tough on the Israeli entrepreneurs as you are on an American entrepreneur and just as supportive. And that is the best way to help Israel. Would you want a coach that was training you at a substandard level? No, you want the Olympic coach. Israel has to play by world standards. And people, particularly American Jews or Christians who have a deep sympathy and want to help, don't drop your standards. That's the rule. That makes sense. What was it like investing in Israel a couple dozen years ago versus now? How did Israel change in the last 30, 40 years? Well, it's dramatic. The willingness to endorse capitalism. Thank goodness. It took a long time. Those well-meaning, but I would say misguided socialist pioneers, they did some great stuff, but they retarded the Israeli economy. Many people who are not in business, especially if people have been educated by universities today, tend to think of business as greedy, and it's about profit, and profit is somehow exploitive, and it's mean, and it's biased, and da-da-da. I like the Walter Williams definition of profit. Profit is a sign that you have served your fellow human being. 
you have delivered something of value. And I'm not talking about an exploitive forced economy or unfair practices. What many people don't understand, though, is that entrepreneurs are not just in it for the profit. I think entrepreneurs are really like an artist with something inside that they have to express. So the Abraham Accords, the peace agreement between Israel and some Gulf countries was signed. How do you see the opportunity both for Israel, for the Middle East, and also maybe for you as an investor? Abraham Accords are heroic. I think they're very underreported, underappreciated. I've been seeing the need for this for a decade. I remember vividly Davos in 2011. This is the winter when the Arab Spring was breaking out, sitting with people from leading Arab countries, members of the royal families of certain countries, I won't name them, and somebody who's now a prime minister of one of these countries. And I was shocked at their blunt, clear remarks on foreign policy. They said, we need America to be strong. We need America to be a leader. We need America to be a reliable ally. They had really not a lot of problems with Israel. They were happy to get along with Israel. They said, yes, there should be an accommodation with Palestinians. But the big issue on their minds was Iran. They're fanatic. It's not the people. The people are nice. It's the government. Very authoritarian, even totalitarian. And they will not change without regime change. And I thought, that's amazing. That word regime change, if you say it in America, they say you're anti-Islamic. Now move forward to the Abraham Accords. And I won't say which, but some of those people were probably at this dinner. It's been amazing. My colleague Yodfat Harabukhras and I were able to go to Dubai, and we were so warmly received. They're saying, this is overdue. We want to be part of the Middle East's integrated economic system. We see Israel has done so well, and we want to have that. We have things to offer Israel. They have things to offer us. We have this joint geostrategic interest in stabilization of the Middle East, defending ourselves against Iranian aggression. And so this was long overdue. We were at this conference, and someone said, "David, not on the agenda of the conference, but would you like to come to an event that's really unique in history? It's the first time in the Arab Muslim world we're going to have a ceremony to commemorate Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day." Mm-hmm. And so I went to a museum called the Museum of Civilizations in central Dubai. Everyone was holding a Yisker candle, a memorial candle. People read out the names of people who perished in the Holocaust. Prayers were read in Arabic, in Hebrew, in French, in English. I was so moved, absolutely fascinating. The willingness of the Emiratis to move forward, it's real. They want it to happen. They want to invest in it. Again, this three-way tie, U.S., Israel, Gulf, makes a lot of economic sense and geostrategic sense. And it's going to be a great cultural mix. They have great food. They have great music. We do too. Let's party it up. <laughs> you came out in your 30s. How was it for you? And how much of you today, as a person, as a business person, was impacted by who you are? I knew quite early that I was gay, and I didn't want to be gay because I didn't have any role models, and I thought it would be complicated and difficult and maybe dangerous. And so I was trying to repress it and suppress it for a long time. And then I finally realized that, mm, I'm probably not going to change. And the world, thank goodness, was opening up so fast. There has almost never been a liberation as fast as the gay liberation that happened in the course of the 70s, 80s, 90s. It's phenomenal. Once the gay community could say, that's all we want, just equal treatment, nothing special. Most people are quite willing to do that. They're afraid of it. People are always afraid of things that are different. Sometimes we try and say that we're victims more and more and more. I don't think we should anymore. I think we're there. We've arrived. In Western developed countries, it's very much easier than it was before. But there are many parts of the world where it is not. 
Think about people who live in Iran that are gay or in the Palestinian territories. The oppression is existential. People get thrown off buildings. They get murdered. So that's my statement on that. Now, personally, I was the first founder of a venture capital firm to be openly gay. And that's been an interesting experience. I don't think I've accepted much discrimination. I, I tell a funny story. I was raising money for our, one of our first funds, and a friend said, come to a cocktail party for our LPs, and maybe you can pick up some LP prospects there. So I met a very interesting man from Taiwan, very wealthy entrepreneur. He said, hey, David, your ideas sound interesting. Why don't you come out to dinner with me? We went out to dinner. He told me about how he goes back and forth between Taiwan and LA all the time, and he has, it's hard because he leaves his wife. And he said, tell me about your wife. <laughs> and I said, well, what do I do? What do I do? Do I come out to him now or make up a story? And I said, you know what? I can't hide this anymore. I'm just going to say it. So, well, sir, um, I do have a relationship. I've been in a relationship for about seven years, uh, but it's with a man. And his face sort of dropped. His smile went to kind of a puzzled look. And then he smiled again. He said, oh, very interesting. I can tell you about my mistress. <laughs> so I had become vulnerable. He felt he could be vulnerable back with me. Most people are not bigots. I think that I've caused more problems for my career by suppressing telling others about myself and about my family and so on. So my recommendation for people who are LGBT questioning, etc., is try and be open. Don't be dogmatic. Don't be a victim. March forward proudly. Be savvy. You don't have to wear it on your sleeve. I don't say, hi, I'm gay. Nice to meet you. I say, hi, I'm David Blumberg. Nice to meet you. And if it comes up in conversation, fine, let's talk about it. No problem. So you live most of your um, life in, in California, and I assume that uh, being gay in, in that part of the world is also easier than other parts of even the U.S., but you're also uh, very uh, openly a Republican, being open about being a Republican. How does that You've uh, said working it, the R word. Uh-oh, I knew this conversation was going here. Now I'm the devil. I'll just be blunt here. The left trumpets themselves as very tolerant, and we are the arbiters of culture and taste. We are so tolerant. We hate hate speech and so on and so forth. And yet, when we, <laughs> we came out as Republican, cocktail glasses would drop at cocktail parties, and we got disinvited from cocktail you know, circuit party invitations and stuff like that. I lost more friends coming out as a Republican than I ever lost as gay. And yet, when we told our deeply evangelical religious Christian friends and our Orthodox Jewish friends and our serious Catholic friends, they did not drop us. They had questions. They had concerns. But they were more forgiving. They were more open-minded. They were less ideologically rigid. Isn't that surprising? Anyway, why am I a Republican? I'm a Republican the way Martin Luther King was first a Republican and Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. I'm a Republican because I believe in individual liberty. I think the problem today is that governments everywhere are too overreaching, too controlling, too regulating. I want more individual liberty. I want people to thrive. I want human flourishing. And we think that markets generally do that better than government controls. And we think that individual policies are better than collectivism. And I feel that Martin Luther King had it right. We should judge people not by immutable characteristics of gender, of orientation, of race, but rather by the character, their talents, their abilities, their ethics. That's what is really the characteristic of a human being. So there are a few questions that we're asking all of our guests. Yes. What piece of advice do you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? Ah, that comes from the Bible. Hazak ve'ematz ve'al tira. 
be strong and have courage and don't be afraid. Whatever your defect, whatever your deficiency, whatever is abnormal in your life from the quote unquote standard folks, you're okay. You're not alone. It gets better. Life has this amazing heroic journey arc. And you complete that heroic cycle by giving back to your village, your tribe, your family, your nation, the world. My favorite quote, I think, of all is from Hillel. If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? Those are good words to live by. Awesome. What is the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? Well, just to pick a big elephant in the room, the demonization of Republicans is pretty pervasive, and it's so wrong. It is so biased by the media reportage. It's just incredible. And last but not least, what are you most optimistic about? The future of humanity. And I want to say to people who are afraid, and I'm going to pick on Greta Thunberg. She's very well-intentioned. She's a nice young woman, but she has it wrong. We are human beings. We are homo sapiens. We are the engineering animal that God created, or that nature created, however, however you want to read it. We can overcome almost anything. The world is advancing dramatically. We live longer, or healthier, better. It's not perfect. But I'm very optimistic about the future of humanity because we are entrepreneurs, we are engineers. We don't take no for an answer, and then we go to fight another day. Amen. David, thanks for being with us today. It was wonderful having you. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrex Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's go. See you next time.